Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I have to tell you, the uh, the lovely Joanne, she's been getting extra work because, you know, she has her own business, but she wants to get some income. And she wants to get out. She has no interest in acting. And they, it's so funny because they keep calling her for extra work. But today she got up at like four in the morning. Her call was on the west side at like six. And after she left, it made me had the tassel of uh, making the bed. Now, I've always made my bed growing up. But as you know, Joanne has OCD. So I cannot make the bed right. So I'm sitting there and I always try to figure my imagination. I'm thinking, okay, what does the bed look like? There's pillows here, then there's a pillow on top of this. And I finally sit there and I just put it together real quickly because I know when she comes home, she's going to sit there. She could be exhausted and she'll remake that bed just because she has to do it her own way. So I'm, I want to learn how to make the bed right. But I just, if you're living with a woman who, uh, knows her rules of making the bed never try it just ad lib it make sure it looks nice at least make the effort and you'll get an a grade so anyway we have a great show today we have a a very accomplished actor and uh and melinda mcgraw how you doing melinda i'm doing great today steve how I'm, you doing i'm good i'm glad you come on i know I, I think last time you got booked for something i'm not sure if we were scheduled or you got booked for something and yes i we were scheduled and i had to go to vancouver to okay. shoot um some episodes of proof which is a show actually premiering June 16th. And now, do you know what network that's on? TNT. Okay, okay, that's good, because we watch, okay, because we're watching, what night is it? Do you know? It's on Tuesday nights at 10. Okay, because we already have on the TV, my girlfriend watches Rizzoli and Isles, yes. so it's after that. Yes. So, okay, so we have major crimes and murder in the first Monday, and yeah. now we have, because we sit there, and we're, you know, I'm a homebody now, you know, I mean, I record the show, and I do my stuff, but at night, we watch, watch TV, and now you get in that limbo where there's not a lot of shows on. And so you can watch Netflix, but then it's always good. So it's a new series. And TNT always has, I mean, all their series are yeah. good. They're, they're solid and they have a, they, but they have summer launches of a lot of their stuff. So, that's so that. new, new beginning, Falling Skies is starting its new season and there's a lot of other stuff that's starting great. their new seasons in the next few weeks. That's great for you. Cause it's a lot more, I mean, we're going to talk about your career uh, in a little bit. I just want to know. You've been you've been working for a long time, and now there's so much more. It seems like there's so much more projects now. Does that make it a lot easier? Because there's besides TNT and TBS who do the summer seasons, mm -hmm. and then even ABC and CBS they do a summer season, and then you have Hulu and Netflix and all that. Yeah. That must be great for a for an actor because it must be it's a lot more meat for you to get get hold of. There's a, there used to be a very clearly delineated for television anyway pilot season, and now uh, the that traditional pilot season is shorter and it's more concentrated. There's more opportunities throughout the year for yeah the cable networks and both basic cable and the you know premium like the HBO and those things and of course Amazon Netflix and and the alternative media so it kind of goes more year round. So there's not really, except the deadest time seems to be this time right now. June is kind of the lull. Okay. Uh, so that's when I try to make plans with my family to go away. Once my daughter gets out of school, we try to do stuff then. Um, but it's, you know, having a lot of opportunities doesn't always mean you're going to be working. And it seems to be a lot of times in this business when it rains, it pours, there's a drought and then there's a deluge and isn't that, uh, it comes in waves. Isn't that crazy? I know yeah. we were talking about, I even get that with guests. Like I said, they go, oh my God, I have all these guests. Then yeah. all of a sudden you get sit there and go, I have no guests. Yeah, and it's exactly. just, and you go, wait a second. And you sit there and go, well, do I pre-record? And then it's style. But so, okay. So now you were born in Cyprus, I believe. I was born in Cyprus because my father worked for the Kennedy administration. That tells you who old I am. Um, and he, for AID when it was first, uh, which is the Agency for International Development. So he uh, had been in the Navy and then Naval Intelligence, and he was recruited to go uh, abroad. And at that point, my parents already had two girls. They moved from Washington, D.C. to Cyprus, where I was born. And then after that, we lived in Beirut. We lived in uh, what is now Bangladesh. Um, and we lived in the Philippines and then moved back to the United States when I was about four years old. Okay, because I'm going to say, it's I, I know people have moved at, a, at an older age and it's such a different life. I mean, when you're young, you really don't comprehend, I'm sure, the difference. I mean, you know, it's Beirut. But I mean, when you're 15, you'll be like, oh, my God, what's going on? But when you're young, you're not, it's not like you're walking around by yourself. You know what I mean? So, no. And, and also, when you work for the United States government, you are given, uh, you're in uh you know, a compound, basically. Um, there's usually walls around your house. Um, there are people there to help you. They give you, a, you know, people to come cook for you. You have a nanny. You know, they make it almost like, back then, certainly, but I think they still do that. It's like you're a diplomat, so you're given a staff. 
Um, so even though, you know, it's not, uh, it's not like being an ambassador exactly, but it, but there are, you know, perks to that where you're, it's a strange, you're not exactly assimilated into the culture as, as if you were, <laughs> you know, there undercover or something. Right. But my, yes, my sisters went to the American schools that were in those places and they have uh, a much different experience in their memory that I have. My memories are all good because I was a baby. So I was just able to be adored and by. <laughs> so then you moved to the Boston area. Yes. Okay. Now, at what point did you figure out you wanted to get into this acting career? I know, I know you started very young, I believe. Well, we were the three of us, my, uh, Two elder sisters, Jenna and Nina, were both were all, we were all very artsy. So we put on plays at home together, very musical. Um, and you know, as happens sometimes with siblings, you know how you get little labels of who's what. So I was the writer actually, I, and my sister Nina was the musician, and my eldest sister Jenna was the actress. Okay. So that's how we kind of thought of ourselves. And I was quite in awe of her, and it never really occurred to me that I would do it professionally, though I did. I you know, I took acting classes and I joined the Boston Children's Theater and I did act and I, but I like to write and direct little plays and I would give myself little juicy character roles. And <laughs> so I didn't just really decide to be an actress until I was old, until I was 19 and I was in college. And, and the minute I realized I wanted to try it and I was kind of like, oh no, because I knew it was going to be, you know, not the easiest career choice. I decided I had to study for real and try to get into a, a conservatory situation. Where were you going to college and what was your major when you decided? I was at Bennington College, okay. very artsy, loose, and I was studying um, what was called then black music, um, which because I'm a singer as well. So I was singing mostly jazz. I was playing saxophone. I was uh, studying writing and, and drama. But I think there, with the encouragement of some professors there and of just kind of getting to know myself, I kind of realized it was something that I really wanted. And my sister had just recently decided not to be. Okay. And I think that that gave me the permission in a weird kind of way to... It's weird because, you know, it's like when I went to college, it was on my degrees in business. And back, mm -hmm. you know, back then a lot of people, you know, it was like, oh, you go to do business or you go, what are you going to do? And you're like, I might be a lawyer. I mean, we, and the funny thing is, Unless you like when you're like 17 or 15 or 16, you know, you want to be a doctor, you know, then right. that's what you need. You need to study. But most of the times when you're no one really knows what they want to do in college. I mean, and a degree in business is, isn't worth anything. I mean, it's like business is, is every I mean, you can do anything. But so for you, after you decide you want to be an actor, what path do you take now? Because Bennington is a good school. It's an RC school. Yeah. Did they have a good theater program? They did. But I just <clears throat> I just knew for myself. I didn't want to graduate from um, a school and then audition for a graduate program like Yale or, or something. I wanted to do it right away. And I was 19. So I actually was a, already a, a total Anglophile and obsessed. I loved Shakespeare. So I decided I wanted to study in England. So I auditioned for the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art, uh, Lambda, which is the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Arts, and Central School, which is in London as well. And they now, have auditions in New York. Okay, but now you're a, one of only seven people, I believe, to be selected. Well, ultimately, that the first year I I did not get in, but I got a letter asking, saying we they'd already taken two North Americans, an American and a Canadian gal that year. Would I try again the next year? So I did, and I got in the subsequent year. So there were actually eight. There was another American to start, and she ended up leaving. Um, so there were eight women uh, in my term. So it was very competitive to get in there. Yes. And now what was what was the audition process? I mean, it would, how did they decide what would, I mean, it's like anything I'm sure, and it's subjective, you know, people have different views, but um, how did they decide, like, did you have to prepare a piece or did you have a few different yeah. pieces? Yeah, what? it's it's very similar to what it would be now to audition for, say, LOXA, the LA County High School of the Arts. If you want to go to the acting program, you do a, two monologues, a classical and a modern, um, you know, a Shakespeare piece and a modern piece. So. Yeah. So the first time I, I think I did Lady Macbeth okay. <laughs> and um, I can't remember my modern piece. That was in New York for the, the then principal. He's the one that actually wrote me a note. And then I happened to be in London on a year, on a year abroad or a term abroad program the second time I auditioned. And I did Constance from King John. And again, I don't remember my modern piece. Isn't that funny? I just remember the, the Shakespeare piece. What is that like? It must be so amazing because you love Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. And then now you're in London and you're it's a given you have talent because you were selected. I mean, it's just, I mean, that's like anything. They're not going to pick someone who doesn't, you know, and you're going into this world. It must just be fascinating because you're, you had just decided, you'd always want, you'd always act in stuff, but you just really decided to really say, I'm going for it. 
And then you sit there and you get this, it's a high honor. I mean, to sit there and go, you just must've been, was it a little overwhelming to sell someone you get in and you go, Oh my God, I'm, I'm, I'm in this Royal, whatever in, in, in you know, I'm a, a kid from Boston. You know, I mean, it's like, what was that yeah. like? What was it very intimidating? Or were you overwhelmed or? I was, uh, I remember after my audition feeling disappointed, like I didn't do very well. So when I get in, you know, I think the, in a weird way, um, of course, it was very validating. And I think for the first time, my parents, who were always very supportive, but I think they really looked at me and knew, you know, it's kind of like, you know, going, if your kid's a chef or something, get them getting a Michelin star. So like for that, for, for them, I think it was, a, oh, okay, we're not going to worry about that. If she can go to that school and, 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 and be trained. And I knew that no matter what happened too, that uh, when you're at a school like that, you get seen. So I was already kind of savvy enough to know that it would be a school in which agents and people would come. Uh, so I, I knew that it was a good entree or, or there's a brand name to it in, in a weird kind of way. Um, so when I auditioned, I had that savvy. But the minute I got in from the time I left, it was all about the the high, the drunken glory of just immersing myself in that. I mean, I would give anything to just do it again. I mean, I, I can't tell you the the intense joy of just doing nothing but movement work, voice work. Um, and what they used to do at RADA, they don't do it anymore, but what they used to do under Hugh Crutwell, who was the principal at that point, your first term, they would put you in front of a paying audience. Okay. So a, a lot of drama schools in the United States, and even now, I think most of them in England, you're not allowed to go up in front of people for a couple of years. They got to break you down and start See, again. that always bothers me because yeah. I think it's, you know, you're there to act and I understand you need the training. But also, you know, if you're there to swim, you know, I mean, yeah. you you're gonna you're not gonna have a kid in a class in a, in a you know in a bath similar. You know, it's like you're there to act, so it's like see, and and that's the one thing is people can be good in a class, but then the nerves may get them on stage. That's I think once once you go yeah. on, I mean, it would be to me, I would be irritated because what if I was had a stage fright but i wanted to act and then i'm taking these classes and then when i go up on stage first time i flub then i go and wait i just wasted two or three years doing something that i can't do i mean for you it must have been great because you no, know i had no i had you you may not believe this but i had the worst stage fright really? of anything and in fact i'd be on the in the wings thinking i was gonna have a heart attack and all i could say was at least i'm not flying on an airplane because i was terrified of flying I'm, I'm actually not anymore but i was so terrified of flying at that point and it was the best thing that could have happened to me to work through that terror. Um, and, you know, at first you would do, you know, I mean, I, maybe if just a couple of lines, but you were in front of an audience. And Richard Attenborough, who was, the, you know, the chair of the board, would come. He would come right. to the Venber and be in the audience. And, you know, it was it was an insane notion that you were. But what it does is there's a sense of community and belonging and and a rarefied um, uh, belonging in a craft. So what I really love about the English system is they taught it like you're studying something great, but you're not great. Like what, what we're going to teach you to do, what's great is Shakespeare. And if you're lucky, you can touch the hem of this character. So it's all about, you know, learning a tradition and making fresh then. Um, these, these amazing works. And of course it wasn't just Shakespeare, it was everything. And we also did American things as well, but, um, that kind and, and learning a lot from the outside in though, they do do internal work. And I never really, I didn't really study method acting until I got back. So I learned very much, um, you know, how does the, how do the shoes make me feel for me? The way in is how do I sound? the dialect, the way they teach dialect there, it's very specific. Every dialect is connected to the geography and topography of a region. So, you know, when you're, when you live, you know, in Lubbock, Texas and you're, you know, and you go up and there, you know, there's a certain kind of, there's a reason that there's a hardness and there's a flatness and there's a, not a lot of, you know, because it has to do with the temperature. It has to do with how flat it is. It has to do with, uh, how, how long people have been living there. You know, when they talk about Yorkshire and a certain kind of, you know, that has to do with the humidity in the air. You know, everything was so specific. It was so, um, uh, beautifully, laid out in ways that that could ignite you on different levels of not just your imagination, but your intellect and your body that um, that I really came to appreciate acting as a great craft, as a okay. great art form. 
And and so I've never thought of myself as, you know, a Hollywood actress. And I was a total snob for a while, too. And I swore I'd never do television. And, you know, really? this is the 80s when Dynasty and Dallas were reigned supreme. It was before HBO. It was a very different time. I mean, the TV, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's, that's my generation. You know, it's yeah. like, and like, I mean, even like when Miami Vice came on, we were like, oh, this is amazing. But now I watch all the episodes of Miami Vice and you go, this is pretty lame. But she's I mean, a yeah, It's like cheesy. <laughs> but, but back then when you're, when you're in college and you, you want the Don yeah. Johnson stuff, you're like, this is great. But as someone who's trained, you must sit there and go, I don't. I don't want to sit there and, and do that because you're right. It was, it was over the top, but because I wasn't in the industry and you don't notice that, but it must, yeah, it must be something for someone who's trained and, and you know, the, the dialects and you probably sit there and watch something and go, mm -hmm. God, that, that accent is all wrong. I do actually I grew up near Philadelphia. When I hear, I mean, I can tell a Philadelphia accent oh, I'm sure. and when I hear one's different, I go, that's not a Philadelphia accent. That's well, not, that must and drive you crazy. And cause yeah. for me, cause it's just, I grew up and my father had a very strong Philadelphia accent. So now how long were you in that school for? <clears throat> so back then it was a, it's about a two and a half year program. So I stayed and, you know, um, I was there with some very interesting actors, uh, of which you would know, you know, half of them. Um, and, and then I stayed in England and I worked on stage, on stage. So I, for me, it was stagecraft. It was all about theater and stagecraft. And my, the, my first job I ever had was as Mariah in Twelfth Night with Cheek by Jowl Theater Company. We traveled all over the country and then we traveled also to Ireland and to Sicily. So that was a, a gig for a year. So that was my first paying job and I was um, 22. So yeah, 22 years old. How great that must be though. Cause you're, I mean, you're going to these wonderful places. I mean, yeah. you're in England, you're going to Italy and Ireland and just, and you're, you're absorbing the culture. I mean, you're living there. I mean, cause it's like anything. It's not like when I used to stand up comedy, you, you know, you go into a town for a weekend, maybe three nights and then you're gone. But this you're you're, and they're, you're just absorbing the culture. And it's like, it must've been great. It must be very eye opening for you at a young age. Well, the interesting thing about it, this was a bus and truck, which means that it was a cheek by jowl is known for their really creative interpretations of classics with very little props using. Um, so we did it. You know, I played her like I was from Brooklyn and I played and I was dressed as a nurse and I smoked cigarettes and played the saxophone. So it they, it was a, a very alternative production. And we traveled in a van and we put the set together ourselves. We had a stage manager who was wow. also a member of the cast. So we traveled and it was one and two nights and we'd be put up in these little pubs above the... So it was the, the English culture, but from village to village to village, sometimes city to city, but it wasn't like a Broadway tour or something. So it was, yeah. It's like the old punk rock days. It was in exactly. the van, go yeah. from town to town and see you do this gig yep. and you don't know how many people are going to show up. You don't know what's going to happen. That's right. So now you're doing that. And now at what point do you decide you want to leave England? I mean, how long were you there? Well, I was or... there. I stayed there. I was very lucky. I got to be... Um, you know, I got to work with some wonderful directors and I did get to be on the West End. Um, and then what happened was I was cat. I did a little episode of a TV show called Rockcliffe's Babies over there, which and I played a Cockney girl. Now, that, that was, you know, for me, a great thing because it's hard to, you know, I, I never really wanted to leave. But I, I wondered if I would ever be completely accepted as an English actor. Okay. Um So I played half English roles and half American roles while I was there. But then I got a. Um, a role in an American playhouse. So again, uh, you know, it was a PBS. So for me, that was still cultural and still, you know, it's, exciting because I, I was obsessed with Nicholas Nickleby and, you know. It was good TV. I mean, that was, was that was, TV. that was like the, you know, the, you know, you would sit there. I know my father used to watch Dark Shadows and that and just different things. Yeah. And uh, there would be in Philadelphia, they played Woody Allen movies on that. And just, so it was. It was the highbrow right. of the TV at that point. Right. So, so I got a production of The Big Knife. And that was over there? Over there, okay. opposite. But it was cast with Americans, some who lived there, and Peter Gallagher was okay. was the star of it. So and so I got to play Dixie with a, you know, a platinum blonde wig, and I played this real character. But we shot it like a movie with five cameras that moved around, which is how they shoot live sitcoms here. But I thought it was, that's what making movies was, because I had never, I didn't right. know that, you know, you shoot with one camera. Um, and... It was, I mean, I loved it, but it was very challenging for me. It was very different than being on stage. And it was so challenging that I got really, really excited. And I loved, because I had the wig and the makeup, and I looked very different, um, which I always tried to do on stage. So I got really excited about the idea of doing that 
on, on in film. And I thought at that point there was not, it was before my beautiful laundrette came out or around, it was, I think 1985, 1986. So it was before um, England was starting to have a really interesting film um, renaissance, well, you know, resurgence in, in an independent way. And I thought, I didn't know if they were ever going to let me play like Hedda Gobbler and stuff like that. So I got, you know, being young and ambitious, I thought, well, I'll, I'll go back and I'll see if I, cause I'm still young enough see if I can maybe break into the movies and, and also, but I'll, I better start in New York. I'll go to New York and I'll get some plays and, and go from there. So you went to New York. I went to New York and it was an unbelievable culture shock. Um, I had no idea. I, I had no idea the difference. You know, in England, first of all, there's one or two theaters in every town. There are plays and it is a part of the culture that you go to the theater. So there is work for actors constantly and everything casts out of London. So you'll get cast in London to go to Leicester or to go, you know, maybe to go up to Dublin or, you know, or to work in the West End and to do all the movies and television. It all casts out of London to go to Manchester or whatever. In New York, it was split between Los Angeles and New York, and of course Chicago too. But I auditioned for a few things on camera, but and I was I didn't re I didn't realize it then, but I was actually coming close to things, but that wasn't good enough for me. I had never had I was very lucky, but I had never had one day out of work okay. as an actress. So to me, it was a terrible failure. Uh, so I gave it. I'm not even sure a year. And what happened was I had an agent that actually picked me up from London, Michael Bloom, who was a wonderful agent. And I got a test deal to fly out to L.A. in New York, by audition in New York. And the night before they were going to fly me out, they called and they said, they have enough girls in L.A. They're not going to fly you out. And I decided then to go out to L.A. because I thought, well, maybe I'll try L.A. and I'll see what happens. And then I came out here and ironically got a play. So that's, isn't that crazy? Yeah. So where, I always ask people, where was your first place you lived out here when you came out? Grace. Grace, is it Avenue or Drive in Hollywood? Okay. In this, yeah. Off of uh, off of Franklin. All right. No, because it's always funny. Right in always, Hollywood. It, it's yeah. changed so much, you know, and it's just so funny because yeah, back it, then it was just like Hollywood. Like, it you know, has changed so much. It was 25 years ago. It was 1990. And it's, it's so funny because you sit there and see TV shows, you know, they go, Hollywood Boulevard. And I always sit there back, you know, when I lived in Hollywood, you're like sitting there going, why would you go to Hollywood Boulevard? It's like, it's like, oh, the Walk of Fame. It's like, yeah, but it's all cheesy gift shops. And just, it, it was used to be disgusting. And it's weird because people think Hollywood is this beautiful thing. Once you get up to the Hollywood sign, it's yeah. it's great. No, but it's, it's it was, just... it was, it was scary where I live. I mean, it was a very druggy, very, I mean, it was, you know, a nice little apartment or whatever, but it was one of those apartments, you know, with the pool in the middle. And to me, that was paradise. I mean, yeah, absolutely. You know. So when do you start getting work? You come out here. I know you're on a, a night shift, a night court. I, I came out. The first job I ever got it, that got me my SAG card was actually Quantum Leap. Okay. And it was a great role and I knew nothing. And I showed up to the set and Scott Bakula and Dean Stockwell and Charlie Rocket were who all my scenes were with. And we shot our first scene outside. And, you know, I I stood there and I did my lines and I was in my little costume. I played a Salvation Army lady and uh, I would feel this these little tugs like on the bottom of my jacket. And I didn't really understand what was happening. But what was happening was Scott Bakula was leaning his hand out of frame and pulling me onto my mark okay. <laughs> next to me in the master. <clears throat> Anyway, so after the master was done, the director, who was Michael Watkins, who at the time, uh, it was his first directing job, he was a cinematographer, said, okay, let's move inside. And so I walked away and Scott said, where are you going? I said, I thought we were done. And he said, he means move inside the scene. He's going to shoot it now close up. So I had no idea what any of these things you're, meant. Because you're a theater. I mean, Nothing. That's... Yes, theater. And uh, so, it, you know, they were so kind to me and they really taught me. So I learned so much on that show. So I wanted to, I had to get a second job because I taffed Hartlead, which means they, they let you do your first job and then you got to get a second job to pay them SAG to join. Okay. So I quick had to get a job. So I got a couple lines on night court. It was my next little job. And that was, that was, you know, to, uh, to kind of, and then I think the next job I got was as this series regular on a Dick Wolf show. So then I started in earnest kind of. The, well, you did an episode of Seinfeld. Yes, that was later. That was um, okay. 
Yeah, a year or two later. Okay, because that was like, because the sitcom going from, you know, because it's going from theater then the dramas. Now, what was it? The Dick Wolf show was the uh, human factor? Was that's it? right. That's right. Now, now, how did that come about? I mean, because you, you got Taff Hardly into that thing and you hadn't had, was that your first like audition for a series regular? Because it seems like you didn't have a lot of credits before you got that 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 gig i mean how, how did that come about that you you got the audition and you got that part it well that, that it happens a lot now with actors who are new in town this is what it's you know that when you're new in town and you start to go out and you start to be taken to producers and you start to get test deals people talk about it so i just uh, the year after i once i did um quantum leap that was a christmas episode so it was on in december and pilot season started in january and um my agents sent me out and I did well and I started testing and the third thing I tested for, which means you audition and you go in and then you go you go in front of the network as one of usually three people, um, was for a Dick Wolf show um, called The Human Factor starring John Mahoney, which kind of ER before ER. It okay. was, yeah. And in fact, Eric LaSalle was in it. Okay. And it was picked up and we did, I think, six episodes. So then that didn't get renewed. Right. But then you ended up getting on the commission. Correct. Yes. Now, was that right after, like, right after, because I'm like anything, a human factor, I guess, you, you didn't, it didn't get picked up. So you're probably a little depressed because you're thinking I'm on the show. And then how, how yeah. quick was the turnaround to the commission? Uh, well, a few months um, because they were replacing. So I didn't even wait. I don't. I don't, I'm not even sure I waited for the next pilot season. I think it's possible that I um, they did a replacement in in June for the July. So um, yeah, so I went up there to Vancouver, which I love, and uh, and the commission is really where I learned. I mean, I was not very good in the Human Factor. I was I was pretty wooden. Um, I mean, I look back at, at Quantum Leap, I actually feel okay about it, considering I'd never done anything. Um, I think the you know, network hour television is the most grueling job in, in acting, certainly that I've ever had, having done a little bit of everything. Um, it's And I didn't have a clue about how to keep um, this character alive um, with this uh, and adapting to, to all of this technical stuff. So really the commission is where it was in a weird way, my B-movie time. It's where I really learned about Marx. It's where I learned about how far I could go. Um, how big I could be, how subtle I could be. And I found, you know, it was an invaluable experience in, in, in so many ways. I, I really think that's where I learned about acting on camera was that show. Yeah, I was going to say, it must be a big difference because as you said, you were you were so into theater. And once you get on the theater, when you no one's saying cut. You know, once you start doing a production, you're gone with it. And, you know, but in, in TV, it must have been hard for you to, when you're used to just sitting there and getting into gear and saying, okay, I'm on this play, it's two hours. We're not getting stopped. And when you do a show, when you're doing, when you come to TV, all of a sudden it must be weird because it's like, wait a second, I just started doing this and they don't like it. So they're saying, cut, that must be hard for a, a trained actor just because it's a different world. You know, for me, it's it's almost the opposite. It's almost, the, the hard thing is that you're not, you don't get to rehearse. It's, you know, when you have a play, you have four weeks to rehearse right. it, unless you're really, really fast. For me, and it isn't learning lines or anything like that. For me, it's it's only doing things on its feet. It's not improv. Improv's different on its feet. That's a that's a joy. But preparing on your own, and then bringing it in television, you have to learn how to direct yourself. So I actually prefer more direction in television. Okay. So for me, when they don't interrupt, it's it's that's difficult. So I and I always you know you always come up with great things after you've done the scene like that night. If I had just tried that or I'd gone to where, oh my gosh, I didn't even get that that was a callback to some subtext. So it taught me how to, how to prepare, not in like, because auditioning is something else too. Auditioning sometimes you don't want it to be exactly what it'll be on a show. Sometimes you're auditioning to show how quickly you can make changes. You're auditioning to let, let the people who are going to hire you relax that you're in good hands. When you're telling a story and you're really trying to get inside a character, the history of the relationship. Some actors like to rehearse, like to talk about it. Some don't. So when you're um, in a situation where it goes very fast and you, particularly on television, not movies, you have all of these factors of uh, personality and of the ways people work, of ego, of status. And I find as a series regular that the directors and even the producers are sometimes afraid to intervene too much. 
uh, they'll interview with the guest cast, but they sometimes, um, unless they really, really have either great self-confidence or um, trust their actors enough that, that they know their, their actors aren't going to somehow shut off by getting direction. So for me, I prefer I prefer a collaborative, you know, as much as possible. Now after the commission, because I mean, you've, I, I look at your resume. It's you you you've constantly worked. I mean, that's one thing that's what's amazing is you've constantly. I mean, I look at it. It's like you know, and you've been in some great shows, and it must be because you ended up on the X Files too. Which, yeah. which I always sit there and I think about shows that have a that certain audience, like they a niche audience. It's like I know you were at Men on of Men on a Certain Age. I had the same audience. That that audience was me. Yeah. You know, like that was my age group, guys who are, you know, 40 to 60, and we loved that show, and, you know, and you watched it, and it was, you you, you had to follow it, because people said, okay, but with X-Files, it must have been different, because people must have, you must have been getting recognized from sort of some strange, yeah. not strange people, but the X-Files was, that was before all, every, everyone was going crazy about you. Yeah, this thing. was, yeah, one of the first that main major cult shows, probably Star Trek was like that even back then, but... I, I got chased down on the street for X-Files. It's the only thing I've ever been chased. But, was yeah. it, but who chased you? That's so crazy. A, a fan actually in Vancouver, uh, which is interesting. Since it shoots there, you would think they'd be kind of more used to seeing people around. But I also think they they know a lot of times I can I can tell I'm recognizing it's out of context. So people kind of, you know, um, you know, if I'm certainly if I'm not. And sometimes I get to people told you, you look like that girl who played Melissa Scully. <laughs> the right. or something. But yeah, the X-Files was a, a very different experience. Now, uh, Glenn Morgan and Joe Wong had worked on the commish. So I was friends with them and we all worked on the same lot. So I got to know Chris Carter and Dave Duchovny. We, we all kind of got to know each other. So the X-Files is kind of an interesting story. They, uh, were kind of thinking when she became pregnant of bringing on another woman. And then they realized I looked too much like her uh, and it couldn't really work. So they said, let's talk about some kind of other character. And I actually got to have some input on the character. Um, what kind of character you like to play? Well, I'd like to play the opposite of her, you know, somebody who's really, so they um, created this character, this psychic, and it was really, really fun. And then when they killed me off the X-Files, I got a show, I got a sitcom which was from the makers of Frasier, and it was on after Frasier called uh, the, the uh, it was called um, the Pursuit of Happiness, and I think everyone thought it was going to be a big hit, so they killed me. And I said, wait, uh, let's see if the show's picked up. And right. sure enough, it wasn't. And I was like, see, so they brought me back as a ghost. Oh, that's, which, see, that, yeah, that's, that's, that's the that's show. Cool. They can do that. Yeah, that's that must be great because they said they go, okay, yeah. any other show, unless it's a soap opera, you can't bring someone back as a yeah, ghost. But X Files is like that. So that must have been fun, though. It must have been just, but for to get, I mean, to get recognized must be very odd. And I, I think. For men, it's one thing. For women, I think it's harder because there's a lot of creeps out there. I mean, let's just say, you know, like fans are, you know, are more fanatical towards women unless, you know, unless they're computer guys who see like the lone, the lone gunman. You know? uh -huh. But it, is, it must have been weird if someone had chased you. That must just, that must just be weird to sit there. And... It was a, it was a girl. <laughs> it was a girl? Yes. Um, it was a young girl. And, you know, I've never... Look, you know, I have watched a lot of my very good friends become famous. It is a very difficult thing, and it, it's a, full of a lot of pressure. Um, sometimes they're paid enough money to make it worth it, and honestly, sometimes they're not. And I think that people don't understand that it's uh, it has a whole life to it of its own. It is not the only upside to me of being well known would be to have more leverage to get more roles right um but but the downside yes of having your privacy invaded you know you have to be more careful um i have never felt threatened i've gotten some strange letters i don't usually have my home address right, on of any course. of my things um but i do not i am not an actor who is in and of my in and of myself as an image i think i think uh, you know I, i'm not um often um relegated to one character so much that i've become famous in that way people typically say you look familiar or you're an actor aren't you but they couldn't tell you my name and they probably couldn't even tell you what characters i've played so i'm that suits me very well i i'm really a character actress who sometimes plays leading. That's how I think of myself. That's how I've always thought of myself. I would like to play, you know, the great 
characters and the great leading women, of course. Um, but I don't think of myself, you know, I never really thought of myself as an ingenue in that way or a sex symbol in that way, more like a Maggie Smith you know, okay. type. That's how I always kind of sell myself. Someone who could maybe go both ways. But you've been in some really, I mean, when you look, when you look at your resume, as I said, you've been in some really shows that are, are a niche that are very popular. Like, you know, you did the X-Files, you did Desperate Housewives a few times, yeah. which, you know, and I've talked to people about that show where that was, had same, such a market. And then that, I mean, before that show, there was no such thing as a cougar. There was, those were terms that no one knew. And it was one of those shows that just hit a certain uh, pulse of the nation that people a just moment. Yeah. loved it. And and so what was that like? Because that was a show because, I mean, that, that was an influential show. Absolutely. I mean, I think, yes, I, I have to say I have been, you know, you stick around long enough and, you know, if you're lucky, you get to be in some of these things that are of a moment. I mean, Seinfeld is one of those that ch completely changed the sitcom. The X-Files was one. It made a uh, a completely different kind of serialized, not cannot miss um particularly because it has a sci-fi element to it. Comic-Con, I mean, it was the beginning of a lot of that stuff. Desperate Housewives, same kind of thing. Culturally, it changed television back to a female-driven vehicle, which it, it was for many years and then kind of became more male-skewing. They still are interested in the male 18 to 36, strangely. Um, women have a lot more um, income than they used to. Maybe it's because of the wage gap that they still don't. I don't know, but women make most of the buying decisions in the home. So I'm not exactly sure how all of that works or why it works that way. It seems counterintuitive, but but that certainly showed that was not to be missed television. And it was about these older women. All of a sudden there's older women not disappearing. And all of a sudden, older women, oh, they actually have a life after 35. And guess what? They're having sex and they're 45 uh, or 50. And, um, you know, so that's for instead of just it just being a few older women right. here and they're like really glamorous Holland Taylor, really, you know, it was it's women are more and you can see it's more and more every year that is start started to shift at that time. West Wing was another one. Yeah, that was also another show that had a very devout following and just people love that show. And, and you were anyway, it's, and you work with Aaron Sorkin, which, you know, the guy is is. I mean, that's, it's like did, for when you auditioned for these shows, did they, did they know of your work? Did you, did, did you expect to be recurring? Cause a lot of times people say they'll do a guest star and then all of a sudden it turns into like a few more episodes cause they like you or, I mean. Usually in the, in the case of, I have to say in the case of the X-Files, Desperate Housewives, uh, uh, West Wing, I knew they were arcs. I knew that they were arcs. Um, uh, so I think people, you know, people know of your work. Of course, cast the casting directors in this town, you have to be, you have to know everybody's work. I mean, the casting directors in this town have a monumental job, and there's so many unbelievably creative, talented casting directors in this town. So it's their job to know everyone. They bring you in. You know, I'll read for almost anything unless it really is either not a role I want or the money just it would cost me too much to do it if I have to fly myself somewhere right. or something like that. The um, but in in those situations, yeah, the it comes down to the audition. I think that you know, there's all there's so many wonderful actors in this town, and sometimes they just need to see you right in the room. They need to have a feeling of you know. I'd always prefer to go to the director instead of on tape. This whole new thing about being on tape, I'm not. I I don't pr prefer that, um, because I think that there's not just because you can give someone direction, but I actually think that there's something that you can get out of someone to put on camera that you can only feel when you're with them in person. The whole idea of being on camera is to try to capture the humanity, capture authentic moments that are accidental uh, or that come out of a freshness that you create together before it happens. So I would always rather be in person. I, I don't, I don't think it's good. I don't think auditioning is going to go away anytime soon, but anyway, that was a long winded way of asking that. No, it was in the audition process that those, things came to me. I don't think I've been, I've been in some situations where they brought me on as an arc and then decided to give me another one. On NCIS, I came to do one and they decided, well, now we're going to bring you back every year um, until this last year where they killed me, which was quite a shock, I think, not just to me, but <laughs> to the fans um, because I play his ex-wife and, and uh, Fernell's ex-wife. So that, so that became something I did every year. It was a comedic, kind of a comedic episode for them 
that they didn't know I would be coming back a lot. But, you know, though there's always shows every year that oh, I really want to get, you know, I really want to get on Veep. I really want to get on. I love Veep. Yeah, shows that catch a moment um, culturally, you know, that to me, political satire is is my very, very favorite of all things. So that would always be my something I want to be on. House of Cards or something like that would always be something I want to be involved in. Well, you're on Mad Men. And now what season were you on Mad Men? Now you were earlier. Season two. Okay. So now yeah. Mad it's funny because Mad Men season one, you know, people watched, but a lot of people didn't watch. I mean, it was one of those things. And then it just became this cultural phenomenon. I mean, it's a matter of, you know, I mean, people just loved it. And people who weren't even of that age that you would, you would find people who watch Mad Men that you would never think would watch Mad Men. Like, you know, it's like, cause it's such different when you were on it. Did it, did you, did you feel you were part of something special? Did you feel, did you have that feeling when yeah. one that you sit there? Cause I, I've heard, you know, the sets, you know, it's very private. Like, you know, the, the, you know, the scripts are very private, you know, don't say anything, you know, else if you say it, someone told me, cause I had Mark Moses who played duck and he said, you know, they basically said if you, or it was David stars. one of them said, if you say something, they're gonna, we're gonna, sh you're gonna get fired, and we're, yeah. you're gonna pay for production that day, and you probably never work again, and not just because of secretivity. But what was that like? Did you feel? I mean, sometimes you must feel like there's like a magic. Did you feel like there was something that you just, you knew that this was gonna blow up because it was still in the infancy when you were in it. Did you have the feeling that it would just become when this I was, phenomenon? When I was shooting it, there was a magic of the kind of magic that you get when you're doing something and things are when you're doing something where the writing is so exquisite and the acting is and and there's stuff going on and you can tell that it's different and it was singular in a lot of ways i mean i you know it's easy to you know i don't want to sound you know so many people have talked about the writing on that show but you can't really overstate that it, there's the groundbreakingness about it in some ways because it was completely character driven so some things are kind of a kind of character driven or they they really have um it, well it was character driven with a lot of mystery in it as well and the level of it was so high for me to be able to play a woman in her 40s such a complicated character a wounded bobby barrett who was the wife of the of the uh, comedian jimmy barrett wounded self-made self-accepting, um, powerful, complicated, compulsive, dangerous, you know, at peace, in turmoil, you know, just a really human, broken and put to back together, gorgeous feminist. I mean, there's just not a lot of roles like that, period. Right. In movies, in plays, you know, roles are not written and brought to fruition for women like that. So, when I went in for the audition and Matt Weiner, who I've worked with, I worked with on a sitcom with Diane English years ago. I went in and auditioned. You know, I had never seen the show. And it's a good thing because I would have been so desperate to get it. I probably right. would have loaned it. Uh, I didn't hear for like two weeks what I heard. I was like, you're kidding. Like, I didn't even know that I was on hold for it. I was so thrilled. But as this after the first read through, I realized, you know, he got up and he kind of grabbed me and Patrick Fisher, who, who played Jimmy Barrett, and took us over and was like, no, 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 and started like berating, you know, like giving us these notes. And we looked at each other like, oh my God, we're going to get fired. And come to realize that's what Matt is like. He is so clear in his vision. It is so clear. He he just wanted to reiterate, um, you know, make sure you don't make her do this. Make sure she's not this. Make sure make sure you do that, you know. And I realized, I realized a couple of days later, okay, this is how he keeps his fingers in the pie. And he's not trying to undo what I'm bringing. He's, he's trying to reinforce you know the the battleships in a way mixed metaphors um and he would sometimes come to the set to you know when he would move like a thing he'd talk about lighting he'd i'd have a question he would give me one sentence that just made everything kind of click into play even though the directors on that show were brilliant there was nothing like going to the source with him because he had a world in his head that was so specific and he had been thinking about for 10 years and crafting and perfecting. And he did have to let go and trust people by and how he cast them. Um, when the show started airing was the moment I knew that the second season, that's when it was gonna blow up. And that is when it blew up. It was then. Now is that was that also did you were you cast as one or did you know there was gonna be an arc? No, so, I knew there'd be an arc. Okay. And then now you got the scenes with John Hamm, 
Who? Which? 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 Funny is I. I've heard. I had uh, Jimmy Pardo has a podcast, and John Hamm was on his podcast. And Jimmy Pardo said before John Hamm got his break, he used to hang out in Largo and watch comedy. And he goes, he's like the nicest guy. Like he's just a guy who loved comics. I love comedy. He goes, he did my podcast. He goes because he was you know a great guy. It must have been great doing scenes with him because it's he it's his character is so brooding and intense. And you know it's so funny when I, I you break it down. I mean when you think of Don Draper, he's a, a an identity thief a louse, a drunk, and a womanizer, but you love the guy. You root for him. What is, I mean, it must have been weird doing scenes with him, and then when it's off camera, it must have just been totally just like totally relaxing because he's probably just so funny to work with. Yeah, he's he's one of the funniest people I've ever met, actually, um, in terms of wit. Just totally witty. He's incredibly smart, very sweet gentleman. I mean, that that's the word I would say about him. It's, he's a gentleman. Like, he is considerate and he's uh professional and you know has boundaries he has none of that weird stuff you know he's not a self-involved guy you know he's just a, a very healthy guy who happens to have a lot of depth and is an incredibly talented actor you know you can't be funny if you're not smart he's just super smart but there were, you know, sometimes we didn't do a lot of chatting in between because it was intense. And, you know, there. listen, I was playing a, a very decrepit right. person with, with strange morals, too, you know, and I'm just this goofy mom, you know, I mean, I'm, a, you know, and <laughs> but, you know, so you can't always totally relax and have it. Sometimes you can, you know, it's it kind of dependent on what we were doing. Now, you've played a lot of the dramas, but then you end up on a sitcom with Kelsey Grandler. Hank. Now, uh -huh. now, how did the sitcom? I mean, because you're coming from, as I said, you know, Mad Men and X Files and West Wing, and then a sitcom comes along. Was it something? Did you did you tell your agent that I want to do comedy, or was it something that just came about? Because it just it's you don't you think know, it's... I it's funny, but strangely enough, probably half the series I've been on are sitcoms, and it's just that they didn't last very long. Okay. So the first job I got for the commission was. Uh, the Pursuit of Happiness with Brad Garrett um, and Larry Miller and, you know, it and many other wonderful people. We did 13. Um, I did. I played John Goodman's sister in his show a few years before Hank. Um, it lasted whatever. And I did a lot of guests. So I just always look to me. Work is work. So I don't judge things as a drama or a comedy. If I think the writing's good, you know, obviously it's a different style being live action or, uh, you know, cameras that are moving in front of an audience or doing single camera comedy is different from doing. Um, but I don't really look at it. I try not to look at it as genre. I try to look at it as what, you know, what world am I in? I just look at it like that because I've studied genre so much as an actor classically that, you know, well, you know, this is, you know, high comedy and this is that, that I, I want it not, not to limit me. So I try to get that out of the way. So luckily for me, I've been able to do both um, drama and comedy. For when I went into um, audition for Hank and I met Kelsey Grammer, he had seen me in a movie I did where I played opposite Leslie Nielsen called wrongfully accused and i assumed he had seen me in mad men on because i walked and he said i was a big fan and it was from that ridiculous movie that he had, he had never seen mad men and so you know it was just another side of my career that someone had seen that influenced that and we got along great and it was from the audition again it was from the audition so now when you when you would do live the live sitcoms Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, did that give you feel a feel back to your theater days? Because a lot of times they just run for they just run it. I mean, like I've been on tapings where they run the whole, the whole act. Did that did that take you back to your theater days a little bit? Because oh, yeah. it was live, and yeah. and then how did you deal with because with the laughter? Because in the theater, if if you get a laughter and if you get laugh and the laugh keeps going, you can do it because it's a play. But in TV, they have to they have the time constraints. They have 22 minutes. So, I mean, how do you deal when, if there was too much of a laugh, how did you, would you sit there and did you guys have to tone it down a little bit or make your delivery different or how would that work? I leave that to the editors. The, no, okay. I treat it just like theater. I mean, obviously there's cameras, so you have to hit your mark and you, you know, you're not going to project because you're, you're mic'd. But um, in terms of if there's a laugh and it's a great laugh and it goes on and on and on, I mean, most, most sitcoms I'm on, whoever's on stage tries to make ride that wave and get a bigger laugh. So they milk <laughs> it and do something else to make it last as long as possible. So yeah, I, I, 
Yeah, I've never, I've actually never even heard anyone say say that. But if there's time constraints, there's usually we we try to we try to deal with that before there's an audience in there. Like you know, if we have to either go faster, right. or louder, faster, um, because you know, in the in the run throughs, they time it, and so if you're over, they either have to cut it or you have to. And a lot of times you do wake up, oh, my line is gone for the run through. I guess right. it didn't get a big enough lap when, when, when in point of fact, they have to make sure the star gets all their funniest lines, right? Um, but no, it's so fun because you get to rehearse and you get to try different things. And there's alchemy. There's the chemistry between uh, you and the other actors. And there's the, then there's the alchemy that happens when an audience comes in and that, that you try to bottle and when it works really well. And, you know, that sitcoms that work really well, like Big Bang Theory, when they work really well in front of a live audience, you know, it really is, or like Seinfeld, when it, when you get it right, there's nothing like it. I mean, it's, I'm really glad they're coming back because I think there's something to it that is, it's, it's, it's such an art form, such a light touch, but also knowing how far you can go, you know, it's such a, it's such a great craft. Now, NCIS, um, it's funny because it's like we have like 10 minutes left and I have so much more to talk to you about, but because but your, your career is just, I was going to talk about men of a certain age, but I want to talk about NCIS okay. because NCIS, as you said, your, your role came on. That must be uh, great because that show is like the number one watched show year after year. And I've heard from all my guests, I've heard only the most wonderful things about working with Mark Harmon. And I've heard that you go on that set and you feel like you're on a set you've never been on. Like everyone's everyone's happy, everyone's nice. And I heard it comes from him down because he's very happy and he figures, hey, I have a great show, I'm on it. Does that make it feel great when you go into an atmosphere like that and it's just a happy, happy feeling? Absolutely, I mean, I would say that he, he gracious is the word I would use to describe. I mean, he's grateful for his good health and that he has this great job. He does not take any of it for granted and he treats everyone equally. He eats with the crew every single day. I mean, I need to go to my trailer and lie down at lunch. I mean, I'm not trying to be unsocial. I would love, but you know, I no, not for him. He works longer and harder. He, uh, you know, he's just the ultimate professional. Bakula is like that too. Um, which is interesting that he ended up getting that the spinoff of NCIS because he's like that too, you know. The, and I am like that. These guys are—they're just—it's what I call old school. I mean, you know, there's like an old school, and it's not just a male quality. It's when you're the lead of a show, when you're the female lead or the male lead, or you're the leading people. You, there's a kind of responsibility that comes with it. You kind of are the captain, and even though you may not be the boss, you may. But you know, in Mark's case, he is one of the producers. But you may not be the Gary Glassman or, and you may not be the head of the network. The truth is when you're the leading person, at least this is how we were taught. This is, you know, you, you are the captain. People look to you, not just for tone and how you treat one another. They look to you to get a lift. They look to you for a pat on the back. They look to you for problem solving. People who inherently understand that and are willing to take that on, make the best leading men and women usually make the most successful shows. It's the people who, who feel that people are there to cater to them rather than understanding in a weird way, it's almost the other way around. It's, it takes very big shoulders, very strong shoulders to to be the bottom of that pyramid. But that's that's what it is. And he's one of those guys and he knows it. And that, you know, I think he was raised that way. I think being, you know, the, being on that football t- team right. um, at UCLA and being that quarterback, you know, and understanding what it is to be a leader. He's just a natural born leader, totally funny, um, very light, but he takes what's important seriously. And he is, but completely, you know, generous. Were you bummed when they, when you got killed? Yeah, I'm still really bummed. Because it was a truth. fun, it was a fun, because yeah, you were married to both guys, so it was like, you think they keep yeah, you around. Yeah, and they, I mean, there were some great ideas they were talking about, and uh, and I loved doing the one a year, you know, coming and being, because, and it also, it was, you know, in terms of the fan base, it was great, because people, you know, on a show like that, you know, there's a comforting level of familiarity, people like knowing um Oh, okay, it's gonna be one with comedy in it. They may not know how it's gonna, but you know, I I um I have to tell you, I was recurring on three shows last year, and I was murdered on all three of them. And a friend of mine calls it the game the Game of Thrones factor. 
Um, and I actually think it might be a little deeper than that. I actually think it part of it is because I, I, I'm an older woman and they're not sure what to do with older women. I'm 51. Um, I play, I have played in my forties for 20 years. When I was on the commission, I was 26 and I played 35. I've always played older and now, now I've kind of stopped, um, at around the end, but I'm always like, seem to be playing these kind of powerful women. And I just thought it was very interesting that in the same year, that's, that's these yeah. three women were, and they were murdered. They were, one was assassinated, um, uh, by a, uh, poison, <laughs> the first lady that was on crisis. I don't know if you saw that. One show I was uh, blown up. That was State of Affairs. That was just on NBC. I played a senator on that show. And on NCIS, I was, uh, you know, shot between the eyes by a sniper. Well, maybe three makes the charm. You won't get killed anymore. Well, maybe. And I was killed on the X-Files. But like I said, they brought me back as a ghost. Maybe it'll make a charm. I mean, I, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a funny anecdote, but it's also kind of sobering and, and strange to me that it happened in such a short time. Um, frame right. on th three wildly different shows. That that's the, well, two are on NBC, so I'm like someone over there. I don't know. What is it revenge fantasy? We just know. have a, we just have a few minutes. Proof now. What? Uh, how many episodes of Proof are you on? Proof is it's a, a short. I think it's a ten episode season. I only did three. I came in. I come in late. Okay. It's uh, Jennifer Beals plays a doctor who is hired by Matthew Modine, who plays a Richard Branson type, very rich billionaire, tech guy who finds out he's dying and is determined to find proof of life after death or nothing after death. So he he enlists Jennifer Beale's character to help him discover this. I play Matthew Modine's sister, who's his partner in the company and is a much less tolerant of foolish notions like that. So I come in a little bit later. So you come in like the, the yeah. but that starts this coming. This starts uh, June 16th. Okay. And that's going to be on Tuesdays. Two weeks from today, uh, two weeks from tonight, it starts Tuesdays at I think 10 PM. So you, know, you know what I love about that is because I was my cable, I have the, the TNT uh, HD East Coast feed. So I can always, me, we can record it when we watch Jeopardy. And if yeah. there's nothing, we can sit there and go, okay, well, let's watch. It's always great when you can see a show we can record it instead of waiting because you're like, ah, oh, what if I'm tired? So you can see it. So well, I'm definitely going to start watching it now because you were on it. Oh, and so great. I'm going to tell my girlfriend, I'm going to say, we have a new show to watch. And she'll go, okay. Because yeah, she, she loves, she loves TNT. I definitely will. And uh, I want to, well, just what else is going on? Anything else coming up in the near future? Uh, no, I'm, no, you're, I'm just right now I'm off. It's a nice slow time. So I'm just enjoying my, are you going to travel at all some time from, we might go back East, but we did a big trip last year. So we're just kind of hanging low. Where, where'd you go last year? We, we took our daughter to Europe and we went to London. So I got to see some of my old friends, which is great. We went to London, um, Yorkshire, Paris, and the Amalfi coast. Is it, is it different when you go back to London now? Because you were London there so young when so you were well. there years ago and just everything changes. Yeah. It it, first of all, it's like Tokyo now. It's so expensive. Um, but it's my heart is in London. That's if I could live anywhere, I would still live in London. And, and it will always be that for me. And I love it. And I love my friends. I still miss. And I love it here, too. And I have wonderful friends here. But it, but in my soul city is definitely London. Do you ever do stage anymore? Um, I do sometimes. Um, and I've worked in Los Angeles. And actually, I'm looking for a play now. So. I would love to go back to New York and do something. Because, yeah, I mean, that must be great just to get back and you have the opportunity. Oh, yeah. Now you you have a name, so it's easier to get cast. Mm -hmm. You know, it must be great. Someone else just did that. I forget one of my guests uh, did. Oh, um, I can't think of her name. Oh, I forget it. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to, Catherine Hicks did that a while back. Oh, she yeah. went back because she had started off in New York and she went back and did it. So I want to thank you for coming on. Now, 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 do you tweet or anything? Or, or Yes, you, it's Melinda Lower Line McGraw. You'll okay. find me on Twitter. Do you tweet a lot? Uh, I tweet a fair amount. I'm going to start tweeting now more because of uh, proof, but I don't tweet every day, but a few times a week. <laughs> well, follow her on Twitter at Melinda underscore McGraw. Yes. And so follow her and follow me on Twitter, people. It's at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. I tweet all the time. I tweet jokes all the time. Also go to my website, coopertalk.net. Please check the website out. Uh, there's 300 and over 375 episodes up there. You can also email me. Tell me who you want to see on the show, here on the show. I can try to get them. I can't promise every time. I try to get a lot of a good different crowd out here that's a cooper at coopertalk.net and remember my new website that i keep pushing every week you guys stop the salt.com it was three years ago today that i went in the hospital with my heart problem and when i got out 
I first of all, I quit smoking. So if you if you smoke, stop. I quit three years ago. Haven't had a cigarette. Haven't wanted one. But get the book. Stop the salt. Stopthesalt.com. It's a low sodium cooking uh, cookbook. It's 125 recipes, all easy recipes. If you say you don't know how to cook, that's why I don't, there's no pictures. You won't get intimidated. If you go, oh, there's too many ingredients. That's why there's no spices. I, I, I mean, there's spices, but I don't put like cumin or stuff you won't have. I put spices that honestly, if you're an adult and if you don't have them in your house, there's a problem. So go there. It's a great book. And you, here's what you do. You, you can go to Amazon or you can go to uh, Barnes and Noble and you can buy it or you can go to my website stopthesalt.com and I will I'll, I'll autograph it for you if you want say if you buy it say sign it because I don't like to sign it but my, I sent my mom one and she's like well you sign it I'm like mom you're my mom I shouldn't be signing the damn book but I signed it so go check that out and just remember follow Melinda underscore McGraw at Twitter follow me at Cooper Talk uh, next week I have some bunch of great guests so don't forget keep listening I'm Steve Cooper I'm only as hip as my guests don't forget drink your water eat your vegetables take your vitamins you guys have a great day